0: This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson.
1: Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest this week is Dr. Dan Milner, Chief Medical Officer of the American Society of Clinical Pathology. Dr. Milner has been heavily involved in pathology capacity building in many countries, and most notably led the team that built anatomic pathology laboratories in Rwanda and Haiti for advanced cancer diagnostics. Before joining the ASCP, Dr. Milner spent 10 years at Harvard, where he was the primary lead for infectious disease consults in both AP and CP, and the recipient of numerous research grants, as well as the author of over 100 publications. We're talking about the global practice of pathology, challenges and opportunities in implementing laboratory systems across. both the developed and developing world we seem to be at a unique position to take advantage of improvements in technology and the acceleration of the adoption of digital pathology to add enormous value to both the lives of patients and doctors that we serve as pathologists we'll talk about what the future holds for the profession of pathology what's the truth about reports of the much talked about impending shortage of pathologists will technology make much of what we do obsolete Who will be the beneficiaries of new applications in artificial intelligence? And will pathologists become the conductors in the orchestra of medicine?
0: This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years' experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment, within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268
1: for more information. J-A-V Advisors. Dr. Dan Milner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, we're here today talking mainly about digital pathology, but you are also the chief medical officer of the American Society of Clinical Pathology. So maybe could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background in pathology? how you got involved with the ASCP
2: Absolutely so I am an anatomic and clinical pathologist I trained at the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston from 2000 to 2005 and then I began my faculty job there at Harvard as an infectious disease pathologist and a microbiologist till about 2016 and I have always worked in Africa I started as a medical student in 1997 when I was at UAB in Birmingham and in about 2003 I began working on some pathology capacity building with uh, sites in Haiti and Rwanda through Partners in Health. But I also had already been traveling to Africa, as I said, since 1997, doing uh, research projects, et cetera, in cerebral malaria. So round about 2010, an oncologist approached me. At that point, I was supporting primarily Malawi and Rwanda with some, some ancillary diagnostic work we were doing through the Brigham, through materials that were being sent to us uh, in the mail <laughs> as as fresh samples, not digital pathology. And we were, we were doing our best with that, but it was becoming quite a nuisance actually from a point of view of trying to move the samples. So in about 2010, an oncologist named Larry Schulman approached me and said, hey, we really want to build a lab in Haiti so that we don't have to ship these samples. Can you help us with that? And I was like, absolutely. You know, and I tapped one of my colleagues, who's a a histotechnologist, who's also very smart uh, with lab design and, and understanding how the way that labs should function. And we prepared to build a lab in Haiti. And about that time, cholera hit Haiti. And so Larry said, well, we can't go to Haiti, so let's go to Rwanda. I'm like, okay. So Jim and I went to Rwanda in 2011, in January, or end of 2011, beginning of 2012 in January, and by July of 2012, there was a fully functioning pathology laboratory there. So we went, we did an assessment. We met all of the staff. We figured out what they needed. We figured out which staff should be trained as histotechnologists. We brought them to Harvard for 12 weeks of training. We got all the equipment through either donation or purchase, got it all installed and set up, and the lab was ready to go by July. And since July 2012, that lab has been continuously functioning in Rwanda and was the primary diagnostic center for cancer for the whole country until about 2015 or 2016 when the Rwanda Military Hospital also came on board. So from 2012 to 2015 or 16, I was largely supporting Rwanda. I was helping other countries with other problems, but primarily Rwanda was the project we were interested in. And the ASCP approached me about working on their project which at the time was uh, forming had not formally launched yet and so I talked with the CEO Blair Holiday about what the project what their thoughts were on the project the, the main gap that they identified was that there were not enough pathologists in Africa the main technology they wanted to use was telepathology using digital pathology whole slide imaging and I, I sort of talked him through about an hour of uh, or hour or two of what I thought was, you know, gonna happen. And then in response to that meeting, I wrote him about a nine page letter. And he responded to that letter by saying, I think you really need to to volunteer with me and work with me on this project. And I was like, sure. So we launched the program, the Partners for Cancer Diagnosis and Treatment Initiative in Africa out of the Obama White House in October of 2015. We had our first placement in March of 2016, which was a whole slide imaging system uh, along with an automated histology system in Rwanda in the lab that I had built previously Uh, It was really an upgrade to that lab. And since that time, we have put telepathology in, I believe at this point, we're at uh, eight countries and we have about 12 sites. And by the middle of next year, we'll be up to 12 countries with about 20 sites. All of those use whole site imaging, digital pathology for secondary consultations. So that was the, that was the, how I got it. That's where I came from in pathology. That's how I got to this point. But what happened was in 2016, the project was growing so quickly, and things were going so well. Notice that in March 2016, I was still a volunteer when we placed our first equipment. Dr. Holiday approached me and said, "You know, I really think you need to come work for me full time to make this project work." So I made the decision uh, to join ASCP full time in September of 2016 as the chief medical officer, focusing on global health and, and this
1: project and HIV. Well, that's that's fantastic, and I think. That certainly is an emerging theme in digital pathology is, you know, how we can serve underserved areas in the, in the developing world. And, you know, what I've really liked is this idea of you know, democratizing pathology. And I think that has several meanings. You know, one is simply making these services available, right, where our technology will enhance our ability to serve places where there may not have been a lab or pathologist before, and I think also, as maybe we'll get to, I think another aspect of democratizing it is democratizing the expertise and really availing people in underserved areas of expert opinion. And I think, you know, for difficult cases and cancer diagnosis and so forth, and I think digital pathology is certainly going to up open up that avenue as well. So let's talk about the ASCP, you know, before we get more in deeper into uh, digital pathology. I think, The ASCP occupies somewhat of a unique niche, I think, in pathology and and laboratory medicines. What would you like us to know about ASCP that people may not be aware of? And, you know, kind of what what programs, what other programs are you working on and what really gets you excited about the work you're doing there?
2: Thank you. Uh, You know, that's a, I love when you ask a question that gets me to to gloat about what we do. (laughs) Um, But I I think that there there are a lot, there's, well, the first thing to say is that there is a lot going on uh, at ASCP. You know, several years ago, our board made the decision that ASCP would be a patient-centered organization and even though we are a membership organization you know we have more than 100,000 members around the world uh, about 10,000 pathologists the remainder of our membership are laboratory professionals from the you know from phlebotomists through lab directors really anyone who works in a lab that's certified and so our membership you know in a membership organization is is who you serve, but we chose that we would be patient-centered. So as we serve our members, we do so with a patient-centered focus. And so if you look at the activities that are going on at ASCP today, uh, especially our newer activities and things that we're working through, you can see that patient-centricity quite easily. So we have our patient champions program, which is where we go out into the community. We find patients who have had some sort of life-threatening situation or some sort of disease where laboratory testing was really crucial for them to understand their disease, for them to survive their disease. People who have daily monitoring, people who have cancer, etc. And we have them tell their story, you know, about how how what they learned about the lab, what, how the lab was important to them, and they tell that from the point of view of of you know coming on the other side, coming into the other side of their disease and understanding how important it was to to see the lab. And these are really great powerful stories they inspire p- other patients they obviously inspire other organizations to also think about patient centricity but what's really fascinating is that our members are using those those videos that we have out there and that material to to entice people into the specialty so as you may be aware you know there's a workforce shortage problem in pathology for both laboratory professionals and pathologists and so some of our our program directors use these patient champion videos when they're trying to convince people to go into the specialty. So, you know, multi, multi multitasking and using these different resources in different ways. And that leads right into our career ambassador program and our pathology ambassador program. So back on that theme of workforce, we have laboratory professionals. These are our career ambassadors that go out into high schools, go out into colleges and talk to students about, you know, the lab, the lab profession, what you can do, the career ladder, how to get involved, et cetera. And similarly, our pathology ambassadors are pathology residents who go to college students and medical students to talk to them about the specialty of pathology, workforce recruitment and and becoming pathologists and what the value of that is uh, to their community and and really opening their eyes up to all the different things you can do as a pathologist. And that, that, that segues to our DC office, our policy office, which has been extremely busy during COVID, you know, we we called for a national testing strategy. There's been a lot of press around that. Gary Prokop, who's the chair of our, our committee for science, technology, and policy, and who's just recently been selected as the CEO of the American Board of Pathology beginning, I believe next summer, has really been interviewed a lot of times. He's been really leading policy in that area. We had a town hall series. We've done quite a few, uh, actually a lot of material for our membership and for the public around COVID but that's all been driven by this idea that we really need to work together, you know, stronger together is our motto, um, and that collaboratively, you know, we, can, we can solve this problem, but, but we do have to work together. I think the-
1: Yeah, yeah I like that, stronger together.
2: Yeah. And our, and our DC office is, is also focused on quality, uh, which is obviously thinking about the patient as well. And we have our National Pathology Quality Registry that was launched about three years ago now which gathers data directly from the laboratory information system, sends it to a registry, collates that data along with other data, and then sends it back to the user at the hospital as a dashboard for them to see benchmarks on quality, how well they're doing, what they need to improve on, if they have areas they can improve on. We have education linked to that, et cetera. So that's just a, a couple of the, the most more recent things that we've been working on. ASCP but of course our mission is education advocacy and certification. I think we now have about 25 certification exams for lab professionals. We have more than a thousand educational products available for our members for CME and growing. We recently had our annual meeting which is normally live but of course we had to go virtual this year and in doing so we had 13,000 people register for our annual meeting about five to six thousand daily attendance on the virtual platform and, and really cool, I think one of the, my favorite parts is we offered that meeting for free to our members. There was no registration fee, and yet we, you know, we were still able to have an incredible conversion rate of registrants to actual attendees of more than 50% with a really great experience. So we're looking forward to how to capitalize on virtual education going forward, virtual live events, et cetera so we're really excited about about that opportunity and and the ability to serve our members better.
1: Yeah, it sounds it sounds like you have a lot of wonderful initiatives and you you said a lot there. So I think that this is certainly an emerging theme about a global workforce shortage in pathology in in the US and of course internationally. I so I think you know we have our work cut out for us there. And then of course just making the profession visible, I think has always been a challenge. When I was in training, my residency director said, called pathology, the best kept secret in medicine. <laughs> and we yeah. know the expression like the, the doctor's doctor, right? That that we are the, the consultants that allow the other doctors to take care of their patients. And then, you know, but I think we can't really get away from the fact that it, it is really all about the patient and the patients are who we are truly serving. And I think, you know, I think it's, you'd be hard pressed to find an area of medicine where where the laboratory laboratory results are not integral in the care of the patient absolutely so tell us about how you got into digital pathology? So were you just thrown into the deep end in the work you were uh, discussing a few minutes ago, or it sounds like around 2016, or did you have a special interest already in DigPath before you were tasked with setting up this this lab?
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I feel, you know, obviously the bulk of the work that we do now for cancer through our global health program, the core of that is telepathology and uses digital pathology uh, to accomplish that. But, you know, that particular program is quite expansive. We we work with governments that have not even built in a cancer budget yet. We work with labs that already have immunohistochemistry and are trying to get molecular. So the spectrum of laboratories that we are assessing, gap identifying and helping to create implementation plans includes those that are not yet ready for digital pathology and those that are almost beyond digital pathology. So even though it is the core of what we do for that project, that is, a, that is a full service project where we really look across the spectrum to do that. But for me, digital pathology, you know, being at Harvard from 2000 to 2016, and, and this is, would be true of any pathologist at any academic setting at that time period in the United States, we were exposed to it in our medical school teaching. We were converting from using microscope slides to using digital images and digital whole slide images to teach medical students. There were, you know, research projects that were going on constantly, clinical trials, et cetera, where we were using digital pathology to review cases. Obviously, in supporting Africa early on, there were colleagues of mine, for example, UNC, that had installed digital pathology and whole site imaging in, you know, the late 2000s, early uh, 2010s, and I was helping with, you know, sign out for those cases as well. So. the the tool of digital pathology or or digitizing images to help someone get a result has kind of two vectors. There's the research or the approach of, can we use this, you know, FDA approval, is it a valid way to approach it, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's using tools you have to help people that need help. Um, And I was doing both of those on the the one side, on the US side, where we're trying to, you know, validate these protocols and, and use this system appropriately. But then on the other side, wherever someone needed help, if they sent me a static image or they sent me, you know, link to a whole site image or, you know, et cetera, we would would try to look at that. So I think it, you know, before it was formally a market, before there was FDA approval where you could use digital pathology for secondary consultations or even primary consultations, being in an academic center, it, it was always around you. You know, you were always using it in some way, shape or form. We used it in our research on cerebral malaria. We used it to create teaching sets for uh, infectious disease and and other services, etc. So I've been using it as a tool for quite a while. What I've never personally done is been on a surgical pathology service where I sat down and used only whole slide images to sign out my primary cases, which I think is where the field is going, obviously. But I have colleagues in Africa that I have set up to be able to do that. So I, I feel like I'm, you know, at the at the meta level of, of helping systems be created, we are creating people's opportunities to use digital pathology that way, and I love doing that. Uh, but I have not yet had the experience of, you know, having to sign out all my cases digitally, but I, I feel like I could do it if I, <laughs> if I was challenged right. to do it. Um, but it has been a really a great tool for us as well.
0: This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by DJT Solutions, your single source for all your digital pathology requirements, from consultation services to system requirements, including installation, training, and life cycle support. Since 1995, DJT Solutions, we are your best choice for your best results.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Is that the tools have been with us, you know, for the last twenty years, and we've all been using them in some way, shape, or form. Right. We've been taking pictures of static images or using image analysis to quantify ERPR for the breast panel. We've been sharing images with colleagues. You know, kind of. But that final frontier, that big leap, is going to be when do we finally sign out cases remotely all and go to a completely digital workflow? And that's you know one of the themes that we kind of focus on here on this podcast and if there's one question it's what's taking so long. And so I think maybe uh and you and you alluded to some letters, some like the FDA and other <laughs> regulatory groups. So let me just get your thoughts on that, you know, because at the in the US I think we're at a relatively low level of adoption of going fully digital and I think maybe COVID has given us a shot in the arm and really accelerated that i think it'll be interesting to see what shakes out after this pandemic is finally over so i think one question what's taking so long in the u.s and then you have this unique international perspective and you know where you know do they maybe have an unfair advantage over us you know so to speak in that they're not left with this legacy way of doing something you know almost maybe like you know, a country that goes directly to cell phones without having to deal with landlines. You know, is there yeah. some sort of advantage in the developing world to that?
2: Yeah, I, I make one comment before I answer that to say that I appreciate you mentioning the the, the ability to sign out remotely. That's happened because of COVID, um, and just would like to, to say formally that you know, thanks to our DC office, our policy office, they really led the way with the with CMMS and our CMS and and FDA in getting that approval. Um, they were one of the major groups and voices behind that. I mean, we were really happy to support our members uh, to do that. But with regards to your question, I think you know the the if you think about the analogy of leapfrogging, you know when you when you have a new technology that comes along, whether or not it's a transformative or a disruptive innovation, um, and it, and has the ability to to leapfrog. Unfortunately, in the U.S., there's so many you know things in the way for that little frog to jump over that it, it ends up not being so much a leapfrog as the frog crawling over a big pile of garbage uh, to try to get to the other side. Whereas in Africa, there's really nothing in the way. Uh, and so that leapfrog <laughs> can occur. And you mentioned cell phones, and this is an old story. Everyone knows it, but I think the, 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 the context is really important. When cell phones came on the market, there just weren't landlines in Africa. like No one had them relative right. to the population, right? There weren't enough. But more importantly, if you wanted one, it took two to three years to get one. So that's just a situation that's ripe for disruptive innovation, right? There's, there's, there's not enough supply for the people who want it. There's something that's come along that's cheaper, it's faster, it's more efficient. It's easy, much easier, easier to distribute than the previous. So it's gonna be disruptive, right? Disruptive innovation happens, and now everyone has cell phones, no one has landlines. But when you look at the US, you know, cell phones took a while to catch on, right? It wasn't like it was an instant overnight revolution. People may think that, but it just wasn't because we all had landlines. We had landline protocols. We had ways that we use telephones. We had very expensive investments in how telecommunications worked, that cell phones just simply couldn't replace that immediately. Um, and so it was a, it was a climbing over a pile of garbage when we really could have thrown all of our telephones away and switched to cell phones overnight but it, you know, it just doesn't have that same effect. And that concept happens in, in, in healthcare in Africa and other low and middle income countries quite frequently. Like the ability to leapfrog is there because there's simply no infrastructure to get in the way. So when we look at digital pathology, now you've got like the be all end all of pile of garbage in the way, right? I mean, if, if, we, you know, if, if we think about histology, stepping back for a minute, you know, histology is over hundred years old. Right, you know, taking a piece of tissue, yeah. dehydrating it, putting it in wax, cutting it, staining it, looking it under the microscope. This is not a new technology. We've been able to do this for a very long time. Uh, it's expensive. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of people. So when you when you look at histology as a practice, it's ripe for disruptive innovation. Like something can come along to replace it pretty easily. And if that something happens in Africa, it will happen very quickly. It will spread ridiculously fast because they simply don't have enough infrastructure to do histology the way that we do. And and they don't have enough people, they don't have enough time or money, and they need these answers really quickly. But when that happens in the US or that same technology is presented in the US, it's gonna meet terrible barriers because there's whole systems of training people to be involved in creating it. And so, you know, job loss, all, disruptive technology, always has a winner and always has a loser. And histology is, is one of those fields where I'm very concerned about not uh, pathologists and histotechnologists not leading the field in innovating it um, to get there. And so that's why I really push for our histotechnologists to become experts in digital pathology, experts in all the technical aspects of digital pathology, because there will be a period of time for, you know, a, a decade plus where digital pathology is the everyday thing. We're always going to use digital pathology. We're not looking through a microscope. Someone has to make a slide, right? And until we get to, you know, pure confocal imaging which goes from fresh tissue to to image immediately, which eventually will happen as well. Mm. But all of that is digital pathology. So we have to get this group of people, uh, pathologists and histotechnologists included, to be at the leading edge of that and focus on how how to embrace this disruptive innovation and how to to lead that change so that they aren't left behind so to your actual question what's the barrier in the u.s to digital pathology you know it's interesting as i said it's all that stuff that's in the way but it's also you know the the leaders of our field like the giants of our field in surgical pathology love glass like they you know they it's almost like they have a throne that they sit upon and the glass passes by and they make these pronouncements about what it is whether or not it's based on dogma or evidence it doesn't matter they're making diagnoses and people sit around the scope and listen to them and learn and absorb it and if you suddenly say oh we can just you know flip on a computer monitor and look at it you know you can be anywhere in the room you can't sit at the throne right there's power in sitting at the microscope (laughs) so it is a little bit of a you know it's a little bit of a, a emasculation if you will to take the microscope away from pathologists and they don't like to think about that but if you look at the positive side of it, right, if you take a, I won't name any names, but if you take a, a giant of surgical pathology and suddenly he can digitally or she can digitally stream every case they're looking at to anyone who wants to look at it at any time in the day, how much more are people going to learn? How much? How many more people are going to be impacted by that one person's influence uh, than it was before? So there's always positives. There's always negatives. But the, the issues with digital pathology in the U.S. have largely been around uh, reimbursement they've been around all the stuff that's in the way all the systems that are already in place that we have to tear down in order to build digital pathology into our workflow and it, it's just it's just that way because all that stuff is in the way whereas when in Rwanda when we installed the first system you know Dale Ruhangaza who is our pathologist just started signing out digitally he never looked through the microscope he had every case scanned and for for several years he just looked at every single case only through the digital lens and, and never looked at that but the, but the flip side of all this, and this is the really important point I want to make about this, the flip side of all this is that pathology is not an exact science. You know, I, 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 you know it is science. It is morphology based. We, we look at images, we make a diagnosis, we use molecular, we use immunistic chemistry. But if you take 20 pathologists and show them the same slide, you do not get the same answer. And, and you know, you can say that you do, and, and the closer those people are in relation Uh, the more accurate answer. So if you take 20 people who trained at the Brigham, you will get the same, grossly the same answer. But if you take 20 people who trained at 20 different institutions, uh, especially academic institutions, you'll get very different answers. So how you translate that lack of interoperable, you know, comparison just on histology to the digital world, when you now have color differences, image differences, uh, et cetera, et cetera, it's a real problem. So there is a technical hurdle, which is partially, due to the nature of the images of histology because it's not an exact science b- but there's also a technical computer aspect of it that has to be solved and for when you find those smart digital pathology gurus in the academic centers who are thinking about this these are the things that keep them up at night you know what if we can't get 100 percent concordance between a person and themselves when they're looking at glass to digital much less between two different pathologists or around several different diagnoses so i think that has probably been the main scientific barrier but the but the financial barriers as i mentioned before are largely this these piles of garbage that sit in the way of disruptive innovation of any type
1: i really like your comments there and i think that's an interesting point that in any endeavor there's going to be winners and losers and there's also going to be legacy and cultural systems i kind of feel like you're letting people into our inner sanctum there that you know there is there is a hierarchy right and it's it is great to be the guy on the throne the guy that's driving the glass slide and making the calls and I think you know outsiders may not appreciate you know I think just how well the glass and the microscope works right and how quickly how fast and relatively efficient it is right to get a tray of 20 slides and just zip zap across the stage and and, you know and I think so I think there's a little bit of a disconnect I think perhaps where people from the the technical world come in and say well obviously you folks would be much better off you know, going digital, and we would say, well, it, it's been working for us for you know over a hundred years. You know, so we're not in any hurry necessarily, from that perspective. And you mentioned, you know, the role the ASCP played in bringing down some of these regulatory barriers, particularly in the COVID nineteen pandemic. So, I think specifically, one of the things that happened, and tell me if there were others, is that requirements were waived. That cases had to be signed out in a CLIA facility. So, was that the main barrier that came down during COVID, or were there others kind of behind the scenes that you folks were working on as well?
2: That that was, that was in fact the main barrier. You know, I'm sure that those that are listening to this uh, podcast, if they are interested in pathology, they probably know all about CLIA, so we don't need to go into that. But you know, prior to this relaxation, you must, you know, you had to look through a microscope that was physically located within the four walls of a CLIA you know, a CLIA certified laboratory. And you know, you couldn't you couldn't be sitting at home and do that even though you are board certified, even though the microscope belongs to the hospital, even if the hospital had someone come to your house and service it, you know, the CLIA rules were very clear that it had to be within the four walls. And that relaxation uh, was the primary driver that allowed people to do that. The, the flip side of that is people had to be comfortable doing it and individual hospitals needed to come up with ways to make sure that the liability for their people that were using digital pathology was okay, but those weren't issues for for CMMS. CMMS's issues were CLIA, and so I think the relaxation of CLIA was the main was the main issue, at least from from the perspective that that ASCP worked on. That's what we had to get relaxed with with FDA and and CMMS.
1: Okay, and let's get, let's get back to the issue of the shrinking pathologist workforce, or perhaps the increasing demand for the expertise of the pathologist and so i don't really know what to believe i mean i've been hearing this story for the past 30 years (laughs) you know at least in the u.s that we're you know we're in the midst of a crisis a massive shortage of pathologists is looming it never seems to arrive though and i mean i think there's kind of i mean my take is you know the there's a disconnect between the various silos right academia which has a vested interest of getting people into training programs versus community practice pathologists which have a vested interest of keeping their jobs and doing a high as high a volume of cases as possible and maybe not retiring until they're very very old and so on and i you know i think so i think and it's hard to get to the to the truth of what's going on there so if you could give us any insights taking into account your expertise with ASCP, you know, so in the US, but then also worldwide, you know, to give us your take on what is the reality of the shortage of pathologists.
2: Sure. So so I think we if we step back a little bit from that and say, what is the what is the shortage in laboratory workforce full stop? We know there's a shortage, right? So if we if we're looking at the whole laboratory and the personnel that we need to be able to get the work done in the US domestically, globally, internationally, whatever country you're in. There just aren't enough people that are in the labs working. When you dig down into that um, with, for example, data from our workforce surveys or our wage and vacancy surveys that ASCP does every two years, we find that it, in any given aspect of the laboratory, you know, excluding pathologists, so the laboratory professionals, there's often a, a, an eight to 10% deficit, right? So, so people are at about 90% where they need to be um, for any given laboratory. Some are even worse than that. Um, but some and some are better, but you know, it's around a 10% vacancy. So everybody is having every lab is having to give about 110% to make up for that, you know, 10% deficit that's there. And that's not a sustainable possibility. You don't want your workforce working so hard all the time. They have to have vacation, they have to have time and flexibility, et cetera. When we flip that over to pathologists, uh, we see something very similar. I agree with you that academic drive versus the community practice drive is real. That that's absolutely true. But some would argue if you have a true shortage, if you don't have enough pathologists in the country for the volume that you expect to be produced, whether it's academic or community practice, someone's gonna feel that, right? The academic team is gonna feel it or the community practice is gonna feel it. So one community practice may be you know, at just the right level, they're making enough money, they're as busy as they wanna be, but another community practice may be overwhelmed and say, gosh, we really need to hire more people, et cetera. So geographic differences really come into play with regard to shortage of workforce. But if we if we look at that outside of the US, for example, in Africa, take everything I've said and just multiply it times ten. You know, there are tenfold fewer pathologists, tenfold fewer laboratorians, and that's a conservative estimate. And so there's there's massive shortages and, and work can't be done. And, and in fact, what's happened is if you look at, you know, your average African country, a, an African pathologist will think, you know, our lab is really busy because we have 2,500 samples a year. And in the US, 2,500 samples a year, that lab would shut down. It just wouldn't have enough volume to stay alive. So the, the really sad truth of that is that the lab in Africa that's doing 2,500 samples per year, it's costing them more per sample to do that than what it would cost that lab in the US that gets shut down. But because there are market forces and, and, and business models driving those decisions, in Africa, it just keeps happening, inefficiency, waste, et cetera. But in the US, you know, it's shut down and another lab comes into play. So so it is a really fascinating topic. What I think has been ignored, Joe, and I, and I think this is a really important concept for anybody who's listening to this podcast that's thinking about digital pathology, what I think has been ignored over the last thirty years is the onset of innovation. Right when when the study was done in the seventies or eighties to say we're going to have a shortage in the two thousands of pathologists, they didn't know we were going to have whole slide imaging. They didn't know we were going to have artificial intelligence. They didn't know immunohistochemistry was going to have blown up and turn into not only a diagnostic but a ther you know a therapeutic kind of service. That molecular was going to advance to the point where. You know, with a few markers from a tumor, you can predict its behavior. So, all of those tools have to be put in place when we're thinking about workforce and so you know we i have a model that i've developed in the work we do at ASCP that predicts exactly how many pathologists you need for a given country and we're you know we're finalizing that model and looking at some test cases but in the US the model suggests we need about 18,000 and we have about you know 14 15,000 depending on who you ask so there's a deficit right the model says right now there's a deficit but if you take just the cervical cancer screening volume or the colon cancer screening volume, which currently depends on, you know, colonoscopy or or uh, colposcopy, et cetera, for a pathologist to review those slides. If you dial that down with the effect of HPV vaccination, with the effect of HPV testing, with the effect of things like Cologuard, uh, where you don't need to necessarily do colonoscopy, if you dial it down even two or three percentage points from where it is now, suddenly you need thousands of fewer pathologists and, and the you know the volumes just quickly diminish. If you look at AI, where AI may be able to look at digital pathology images, whole site images of cases for pathologists and triage those cases, they're predicting eight to tenfold increase in productivity of a given pathologist. So if they're able to sign out 40 cases a day now, they can sign out 400 cases a day if we have AI. If you suddenly put that into the mix, that workforce shortage goes down very quickly. And so I have I actually fear that what's going to happen is although we keep predicting shortage, predicting shortage, that as these AI tools develop and they become FDA approved and they're available, suddenly we're gonna be on the other side of that problem where we have too many pathologists. Right. Pathologists are gonna be fighting for things to do. And again, that's why I go back to my earlier point about histotechnologists and pathologists embracing digital pathology, embracing AI, embracing molecular even if they didn't study molecular to make sure they are at the leading edge of that so they're still relevant in their healthcare system and they can stay on top of this innovation as it develops and changes the dynamic of the number of people that we need in the workforce
1: right yeah it is so based on that model it does sound there's like there is a looming shortage quite a a drastic shortage in the u.s but also as you alluded to people are notoriously bad about predicting the future and it's hard to take into account All of the moving parts and aspects that are going to create the eventualities of the future, specifically things like innovation, and automation, and so on. And like you said earlier, there's always going to be winners and losers. I mean, my personal take is that, you know, I think molecular has been a huge advance or the main story basically of the 90s and 2000s. But my sense is, that tissue based molecular is going to get squeezed a little bit, right? Because we're going to move into things like liquid biopsy, where you know, less invasive things where we can get molecular, you know, cell free DNA and perform molecular studies, essentially, on liquid biopsy. And then I think, probably tissue based diagnostics, just using H&E features, I think is going to have somewhat of a renaissance using image analysis, and AI. Um, So how does digital pathology You know, play into this. What do you see happening? Who are the winners and losers going to be? And you alluded a little bit to the work workforce challenges. So, how do you see this shaking out in the U.S. and the developing world? Who are the winners? Who are the losers? And what is it? What does it mean for the future of pathology?
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. So, I think if we if we look at let's just take an example of something that's very hot right now: multi multi cancer screening or multi cancer testing, which is you know was called liquid biopsy self free DNA, you know, use all these different terms, but it's essentially taking a blood sample or a stool sample or a urine sample and looking for markers of more than one cancer, right? I mean, if we think about all the testing we do now, it's often single disease entity. Some of the respiratory panels that we do for viral infection have gotten, you know, very expansive. We can do sequencing to look for things in tumors, but when we think about what the goal for these blood tests, it's really to say, what are the signatures in this patient's blood that are indicating there is a cancer there of some type and it may maybe even its response type, maybe even its location. And there are at least a half dozen companies right now that have these products that are in development on the market. Uh, and it's a very serious question for, for the pathology field because if we think about how would you market that test, let's just say you and I had this brilliant idea 10 years ago and, and nobody else was around and we we're like, oh, what would we do? Well, we would have a very simple business model. We would market it to primary care doctors and the primary care doctors would result the test out and there would be an insurance would, would pay for the test. And then the primary care doctors would refer that patient to someone for therapy. The thing is, is 10 years ago, they would refer them to an oncology center and oncology would have used the oncology tools that they had at the time, which you know arguably weren't great. Uh, we're doing as best we could, but they weren't that great. But now it's 2020 immuno-oncology, pan-tumor treatments are out there. Uh, we're getting to a point, Joe, where just saying this person has a malignancy, they could get a tu- they could get a treatment, right? I mean, it's, it's it's almost as if we're moving away from the need to even know what the tumor is. We just need to know that they have a malignancy and pan-tumor drugs may be the right approach. Now obviously for someone with stage three or stage four or someone who can have surgery, that isn't going to be the immediate answer. But when you've got someone who has a pre-cancer, you know, someone who, who's got signatures that's saying they're going to develop breast cancer next year or the year after, and our standard radiology, our standard pathology services are not gonna be able to find that signature. We're not gonna see it. We're not gonna be able to biopsy, et cetera. What do you do with that patient? The, the eventuality is gonna be, oh, you give them a pan tumor drug for six months or a year, they, then you recheck them and then they're cured. And there was never a pathologist or an oncologist involved. So, you know, how quickly that's gonna come to reality, we don't know. But if we think about that as a as a hypothetical model, you know, where does pathology fall? Well, there will always be patients that present later than precancer, be stage two, three, that are going to need surgery, they're going to need gross pathology, they're going to need margin evaluation, et cetera. So there will always be some work for pathology. But the goal for public health is to for that technology is to get everyone screened on a three to five year basis with these pan tumor, you know, markers, these screens and that we treat them before they even have an identifiable cancer with some kind of pan tumor drug that you know is is that a reality that's coming i I think it is i don't know how long it's going to take us to get there but that's the kind of disruptive innovation that would create a lot of losers you know and not that many winners you know the winners are really um, the patients and the insurance companies and the di- and the people doing that test and maybe the people making those drugs, but a lot of the field of diagnostic, you know, laboratorians, pathologists, et cetera, We would be losing out because we wouldn't be involved in that process anymore. Right. But I think to get there, and this is the part that's always fascinating to me about disruptive technology or disruptive innovation, to get there to that point. Pathologists have to be involved. Laboratory professionals have to be involved. We have to be part of the clinical trials. We have to use digital pathology to image thousands of cases and look at all of the molecular and morphologic features of them and use AI to figure out, you know, what those markers are so that these tests can be informed by that and actually work the way we want them to. So, you know, can we participate in our own creative destruction? That is always a challenge when we're thinking about disruptive innovation. Um, but again, as I said before, if you know, if you anticipate, you can get out in front of this and you can figure out what's that at next body of knowledge that people need for cancer patients or any patients where I, as a pathologist, have some leg up and can move forward and actually be on the other side of this, successfully helping patients get treated the way they need to. And so, you know, that's just that's just one example with multi-cancer testing. But I think with, with regards to digital pathology, we will have a period I would guess, considering the FDA approvals, you know, CAP has just redone their um, guidelines for validation for whole for slide imaging, for use in telepathology, or in pathology. You know, as we are moving into the, I would say the 20s, the 2020s, whatever you call it, I would say this decade, every, everyone who's starting a new job uh, out of residency likely will be using digital pathology every day in their workflow. And it will be part of clinical trials. It'll be part of regular workflow. Etc. Uh, and at the end of this decade, I think that's that. That is the question: is where will we be with innovation, and how will digital pathology have gotten us there? So, what does the 2030s look like for for cancer?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, Dan Milliner from CMO from the ASCP. Thank you so much for being with us. I think you you've given us a lot to, a lot to think about there. And let's not end with doom and gloom, but I think that is a that is a worthy question. How do we participate in our own demise or I think it's a worthy goal for in any profession is how do we how do you make yourself obsolete, right? So we can move on to bigger and better things and find better ways to serve people, you know, to serve our, to serve our clients and, and customers. So just what do you see, uh, how do you see Digpath taking us there? you know, acutely in the next year? What's it going to look like immediately after COVID's over, right? And, and you were alluding to the 2030s. So give us the optimistic scenario for Ditch Path in the 2030s.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, and I was specifically speaking in the context of creative destruction for the U.S. The US system specifically, because I'm in it, I know it, and I know where we're going with it. But when we think about uh, globally, LMICs, uh, middle-income countries, et cetera, digital pathology is going to change the world. these organ these places for diagnostics for patients you know rapid access to other pathologists for consultation being able to take a a lab that has only a pathologist or maybe not even a pathologist but can produce slides and and turning it into a lab that can make diagnoses using digital pathology so gangbusters benefits for the developing world lmics etc as these tools develop they get cheaper they get more easily deployed bandwidth requirements go down. As these things happen, um, digital pathology is, and it already is changing the face of the way that we practice pathology. Social media has shown us that, but in, in real practice uh, on the ground, I believe it is, gonna, it is gonna be probably one of the major tools that advances cancer diagnostics uh, for patients outside of the United States in the next decade. As we move through that decade, I think things like immuno-oncology treatments, pan-tumor treatments, new drugs, et cetera, will cheapen and then they have to eventually, they're not sustainable at their current price levels. And as those drugs fall in price and access to those drugs increases, uh, that will be the second stroke that massively improves cancer care and outcomes uh, in the developing world and LMICs. In the US, we already have that. You know, we're, we're at the crux of that, we're developing it. So it remains to be seen what the next treatment you know, advance will be for patients in the US and, and in Europe, et cetera. But the, from the diagnostics point of view, digital pathology will be at the core of that. You know, we things are moving too fast. We have to report too much data to the FDA on clinical trials. We have to report too much data when we're just trying to write a paper. And the only way to have all that data, you know, together and analyze is to, is to do it digitally. And so I think that, you know, we're in the heyday of digital, you know, as you said, we've had it for 20 years, but we're really in the heyday of the acceptance of digital pathology. It will, it will massively expand. I mean. People that don't know anything about pathology are creating digital pathology companies. And, you know, that's because the technology is, is there and people can use it. Uh, so I'm really excited to see where it goes. I think there are, as I said, some things we can predict, but there are some, some questions that remain and it'll be exciting to see what those answers are.
1: Yes. And I think digital pathology will be it will be at the core of it. Our guest has been Dr. Dan Milner. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today.
0: Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.